0: All welcome back to Unstandardized English. I am J.P.B. Gerald, if you can hear the outsides because the window's open because it's hot outside. Anyway, um, got two final patrons to thank. Um, And those people are Tim Hampson and Ted O'Neill. So thank you very much for contributing. Um, I'm gonna keep the Patreon open over the summer. Last summer is when I opened it. So if you are interested in donating, uh, to support the work i appreciate your doing so if you are able if you're not able that's fine just spread the word about the podcast but especially if you're a more senior academic or sort of person who listens to this and you you do have a little bit extra please feel free to chip in anything could be a dollar a month could be 10 i got a couple of people on at 20. anything is wonderful i appreciate it because it allows me to spend time doing this Um, So this episode, basically, we are talking about um, all the episodes from season two. Last year, I did a very ambitious thing uh, where I went through every episode and put a clip in from each episode. And uh, yeah, it was a pretty, you know, I left that there all summer so someone could get a, a, a glimpse of all the episodes. But let me tell you, I don't have time to do that right now. I did not have time, (laughs) and I don't think it helped. So I'm gonna go through each one and describe the conversation. And if you find certain ones interesting, you should go back and listen to those because they're gonna be you know, hanging around all summer before I come back around, I guess, around Labor Day. Um, I'm not taking the summer off because I'm tired, just to give myself more time to work on both my book and my dissertation. Uh, And yeah, so the season will return at the end of the summer. Um, and I appreciate your paying attention this whole time. Um, I, 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 really consider this to be genuine scholarship, even if it's informal, I think the unstandardized nature of it is valuable. So, uh, yeah. Thank you for listening. I have one thing to do though, before we get into the recap of the, the other episodes. Just a quick addition. I have one more patron to add, Teremy Cornell. Um, Teremy was one of the people I knew who um, really proved to me that there was a, a, a sort of global reach for my thing because they showed up in one of my presentations back in September from Australia, and my presentation was something like early afternoon i believe and it was like overnight there because their like their view in their apartment or house was like pitch black but they were there and they showed up so i appreciate their support for all of this time and their support financially on this last episode of the season so terry thank you for the support So this is difficult, but um, I gotta get it off my chest. Um, so today is May 19th as I record this intro. The actual um, episode of court tomorrow. I my co-authored article um, after whiteness. Well, part one is part one of three. Was published in Language Magazine in the April issue, but it was only you know. Put on the, to the internet on May 17th, which was Monday. So I've been excited about that. I shared it. It got a lot of, I hate being one of those clout chasers, but like something like 190,000 people saw the tweet. That doesn't mean they all clicked on it, but that's, you know, it's a lot of people. Anyway, um, so the thing about that is that, like, sorry, not 190. 19. (laughs) It's a little different. Anyway, 23. Doesn't matter. A lot of people saw it. Um, And I got pushback from two people. One person is this older fellow who has been arguing with me on the internet for months. I don't engage with him. He just comes after me. I blocked him in December. and I don't really get his problem with me specifically. I think it's just what I'm trying to do because frankly, there's people talking about racism in language teaching, but there's not a lot of people talking about whiteness in language teaching and that really ups unsettles people, which is why I'm doing it. And there's another guy who said some just straight racist stuff. Now it's it's sort of unsettling when this stuff happens, not because it discredits the article. No one's reading the article and like, yeah, I'm glad someone said some racist stuff to him. But I want to talk a little bit about how there's actually a lot of motivation in what I do when I've had this sort of backlash or lashing out really in the last two years. So let me talk a little bit about sort of what people would, what some white people especially would recognize as real racism, right? When, when you get, you know, slurs. That's happened to me probably three times, right? Um, the real racism. I know it's all racism, but I'm making a point here. Um, so the first time somebody called me nigger was when I was... 16, maybe? Now, plenty of racism happened before that, and I only really realized later, but I'm talking explicitly, full-on, said the N-word. I was in Tower Records, which goes to show you how long ago it was, and I was listening to music, as one does, and an older woman said something to me, and I did not realize she was talking to me, so I did not respond to her. And what she said to the air, not to me, but she's, she, said, she said it in this voice, can't even hear the little nigger. Um, and what happens is I don't get mad I get confused right I'm just like seriously what and I look around and people are like yeah I don't know if she said that they didn't really do anything about it but what am I going to do punch her in the face like <laughs> you know um that was the first time that was weird It it's like sort of it's so old school to do something like that now she was old but it was just sort of like huh huh I didn't tell my parents what am I going to tell them what, what, what am I going to do to her Right. The second time was, I think, two, three years later. I had connected with somebody on one of those online apps or something. Maybe not an app because this was before apps and smartphones. But you know what I mean, on an online thing. And, you know, we had exchanged some messages. And so then I called her and she picked up and was laughing. And I didn't know why she was laughing. And she said, oh, you're just a stupid nigger. Right, which yeah, obviously she was white. This this was in Pennsylvania, outside of where my mom lived at the time. And now look, I don't want this, obviously I didn't want this woman, girl, we were like 18, I don't know. Um, This (laughs) female-bodied person's actual affection when she said that. But it was just sort of like, again, shocking. And I was in the car with my stepdad, he didn't hear it, but I was just sort of like, huh. You know, you, you do the, of all things, the blinking white guy face, like blink, blink, like what? What happened. Um, the third time was in 20... I want to say, 11. So I'm older now. 24. Or, or, well, my birthday's in June, so it was early in the year. It was 2011. I was 24. And a woman, I guess we're all adults at this point. Um, notably, by the way, it was always women who said these things to me. I don't understand what that means, but whatever. Um, says... Well, basically she didn't like me and I'm not talking about dating or anything like that but she just didn't like me and um you know she made a racist joke that included the n-word and she was trying to make a point because she just didn't like me and uh, everyone but people just sort of like said that was a bad thing for her to say but no one really called her out this is the sort of theme is that nobody called her out and, and all of the time what happens it, you just get embarrassed you know you can't fight back um and especially because it's women and and that I should I'm just saying and you know you just sort of have to sit there and take it right that's all you can do it freezes you what are you gonna do what are you gonna do um and then the last most recent time was when I was at the previous job I had I worked at a senior center and an older woman basically I referred to the entire crowd as guys which I shouldn't do I should say folks, people, whatever. Um, It was colloquial, but it's still a, uh, you know, uh, referring to all a a mixed gender group as guys. I shouldn't do it. Anyway, she said, I'm not a guy, I'm a woman. And I said, you're right. Um, And she came up to me. I guess she was still mad and said, how would you like it if I called you a nigger? Now, these two things are not on the same level. I sort of, like, in an abstract sense, I understood her point. Why she was so mad, and this is what happens each time, is that, like, I hadn't, in my understanding, done very much to these people. Uh, it was more, to me, when people have gone out of their way to say these things to me, it has generally been that I have stepped out of line for what they expected me to do, it. right? The older woman probably just assumed I would do whatever she said, not realizing that I just didn't hear her. Um, the second person wanted... I don't know why she was talking to me in the first place, but presumably she matched with me or whatever and just wanted to make fun of me with her friends. I don't know. And then I bothered to call her, and she didn't like that. Um, and so... I mean, I'm psycho and a lot of people, I don't know. The point is, these things, you can't get anywhere with that. What's, what's really upsetting about those things is not that I'm scared of these people, especially because most of the time they were smaller than I was, but, like you know, it was never like you see in a movie where someone puts a gun to your head and says that, you know, says that, right? Like, I haven't, although a couple of times I've been annoyed, you know, cops have gotten in my face, they haven't done things like that. Um, But, like, it just freezes you. You just get, I don't want to say paralyzed, but you get frozen, you know? And, And that's hard. However, that's a contrast. And people think about that sort of explicit interpersonal cruelty as, as you know, the, the main factor of racism. It's not, though. What it does is it freezes you, so you you are scared to do more things, and that's what it wants. It's an intimidation technique, I think, a lot of the time. Um, because racism is very rarely just about hatred. It's usually a means to an end, and what they want me to do is to stay in line. However. When I think about things that motivate me, I think about the sort of racism that doesn't really usually say the word black or any, you know, the N-word or anything like that. Um, some of my greatest inspirations when I think about my writing and the podcast have been people, usually liberal people, saying things that enforce racial hierarchies, that enforce racism without being racist. All of these things that basically are trying to get me to shut up, right? Um not disagreeing with what I'm saying. I don't actually have a problem people disagree with what I'm saying. It's when they just want they want to dismiss what I'm saying for some reason that I don't understand. I talk a lot about that story about the quote unquote teachers work hard, right? For those who don't know, I posted something about a teacher being racist. I didn't say the word racist, but it was a racist thing. And I said, teachers can be gross. And this person jumped in my mentions on Instagram to say, you know, teachers work hard, which has nothing to do with that. But the fact is, I got an entire academic chapter out of that. That, that, that anecdote turned into my analysis of the altruistic shield, which is the first article I got published. Um, and, you know, that article is turning into an academic chapter that's going to come out at some point in the fall or in the spring or something like that. I'm working on that chapter with Cheryl Matias, who was big in the whiteness and critical whiteness and education space, right? Um, and like, I not only did that happen, but the same day that that, that incident happened, I met Cheryl Matias. as We were in Toronto at the at the AERA conference, and like, you know, she she gave me some good guidance and gave me some not on that, but on she gave me some inspiration because someone said some. Dismissive nonsense when she presented. You know, they asked her, like, well, you know, you got to give me a road back. What, what should I do about it? Which is what white people say a lot of the time when I talk about this stuff. Tell me what to do. Um, but, uh, and she called them out. And so the inspiration I got from that, from when she did that, has made it so that whereas the people always talk about the interpersonal cruelty when people say slurs, the few times I've actually been called in there right? But, I try to get my inspiration from the nice white people who sort of lash out without using explicitly racist terms. They're just trying to shut me up. Because I'm not going to fucking shut up. You get me? You know I have a podcast even though I don't need to. Right? So I want people to understand that although this is part of my scholarship, it's part of my research, it's part of the work that I'm trying to do, it's also a point to make that everyone has tried to get me to shut up especially when I'm talking about racism, they have all failed. Yeah? And they're going to continue to fail. The most recent thing that happened is someone made some racist comments on, on the article, like I mentioned, and, like, it, it's, again, it's like racist graffiti. It's upsetting because it sort of mars the experience. But understand, there are people supporting what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do with other people like Dr. Vijay ranjitan and Scott Stiller, right, uh, the articles that I have coming out. The work that's coming out... That you'll see if you follow me and pay attention to me, like it is going to overwhelm these people. I don't mean in terms of the quantity, although there's plenty of it, but like they're not gonna be able to stop what I'm trying to say. So I just want to point out that um, it's still at a point where, where people genuinely use the slur, it can stop me in my tracks. And I want to admit, I'm not invincible if people actually do that. And again, it has pretty much always been women, so I I can't, like, fight back. Um, But when people have done stuff that tries to get me to stop, which is basically what most of the people doing racist stuff towards me have been doing, uh, they're not going to do it. I... Although this is the end of the season, and therefore you won't hear more from me until the summer, I'm leaving this as my sort of final statement on this season because I want them to understand, and they're not going to listen to this, but I want anyone listening to this to understand that this is the beginning of this shit, you know what I'm saying? You know, this is the beginning. So, uh... To strap in we're going to review all the episodes from the season i thank you for listening i thank everyone for contributing and for spreading the word on things i'm trying to do i just i spent so much time wrapped up in whiteness that it's just imperative that i'm going to do what i can to make sure it takes notice that it's time is coming to a close all right Okay, so here we are. We're going to talk about every episode from this season. There have been 20 regular episodes and one bonus episode. Last season In the first season, I had a lot more episodes because I tried to deal with the fact that I knew I was going to be locked inside um, and just having had a baby to just recording a bunch of episodes. So there's an episode every week from like early March of 2020 to early June. That was way too many episodes. And some of them people didn't really listen to. Oh well. So, this one I kept with my schedule. It's every other week. As you all know, I started, it used to be Tuesday mornings, and I just had too much to do. So, I started putting them out on Monday nights, sometimes Monday during the day. I should probably keep a regular schedule, but whatever. Anyway, um, so. The first episode of the season um, was a person I had gotten to know over the summer, Caitlin Green, Dr. Caitlin Green, who is a linguist like all these people, and she has spent a lot of her time, too much of her time, as she would tell you, talk, you know, researching the way that this sort of cancel culture thing has happened. Now, of course, this was last August, so the way, the fact that cancel culture has basically become the Republican Party's platform, uh, we could not have predicted. But, you know, the fact is we wanted to talk about it, and, and it came up mostly in relationship to Stephen Pinker. I'm not going to rehash the entire thing. You should listen to the episode. Um, and talking about how he had felt like he'd been canceled, whatever, whatever. Now, again, like the reason that certain linguists had signed a letter to try to Get him basically deplatformed, as one would say, from uh, the Linguistic Society of America's like featured speakers or whatever the list is. It's because he, he'd done some faulty stuff, scho- you know, faulty scholarship, and also like harmful stuff. And we wanted him to have less influence. And he had, you know, aligned with a lot of the people who were obsessed with the cancel culture and so forth, um, saying, you know, you can't say anything these days. and So, on. so interesting episode. Um, I, in my notes about it, we we talk, you know, this one was pretty long, it's like an hour and 40 minutes or something, and a lot of it is because we were really just riffing, like, we just had a good time, it's funny, Um, and, uh, you know, realizing that some of the things we hit on in this one is that, like, uh, a lot of people who feel like they're going to be canceled, um, and it's because they have annoying friends. (laughs) and they're a little worried that their friends are going to call them out on their stuff or that they are annoying themselves and they're going to be called out on their stuff. So that's sort of the conclusion we came to. And this was the first episode where I came up with a standardized format in the sense that in the first season, there was a whole bunch of like, I'm going to put music behind the the, the speech or the audio is messed up or this and that, whatever. I kept it with the same thing. Those two little interstitials are here. I do put music behind the intro. I talk about the people who've donated. And uh, yeah, uh, that worked out well. The second episode um, was with Rebecca. Dr. Rebecca Campbell Montalvo, it's called The Numbers Game, it's two weeks later, it started at the end of August, so you can figure it out, it was in mid-September, um, and we were talking about quantitative uh, research and its relationship to race, racism, and so forth, um, and she was talking about how positionality really matters. Um, and, you know, she made some really important points that data cannot speak for itself because sometimes we'll just, you know, say that this percentage of black people or this percentage of racialized people had this thing be true, but what are we really saying when we say these things? And I think it's important, especially in the academic space, not to just rely on numbers if they tell the story themselves, you know? So it's an important episode if you're interested in quantitative research and problematizing the way that it impacts things. Uh, After that was the third episode with my my good friend, Dr. Nicole Pettit, language teaching and the white working class. So um, this is another episode where I'm pretty close to Nicole, we know each other very well, like the sort of the Caitlin episode and these episodes, I think you can kind of tell um, because when the people are relative strangers, um, we sort of, I have more prepared questions and it's more of an interview than it is a conversation. And this one is definitely a conversation. We did talk about important things. Um, She's talking about how she's worked with white working class future TESOL or language teachers and how they are grappling with whiteness and or trying to avoid it. this was interesting. It was before the former presidential administration put out that stupid, I hate that word. Sorry, the you know ignorant, uh, seventeen seventy-six commission, which was disbanded immediately. But they're really trying to make it so in certain states you can't teach, you know, countervailing ideas of history that are actually accurate about racism. Um, but she mentioned, you know, she was in the middle of the class and she thought it was going well. And she said, we should talk again in January about how her students responded to it. And I can tell you, and you can ask her, uh, some of them got mad. (laughs) So if you go back and listen to that episode, you can hear, um, you know, what uh, Nicole's analysis of the way that or white working class students grappled with whiteness, race, and so forth, and how it was a struggle for them. And I do have empathy for them, especially because white working class people, even if individual ones are cruel, are really just being victims of whiteness just as much as we are. Well, not just as much, but, you know, they are secondary victims of whiteness and they're suffering for So the next episode was an emergency episode, um, and this one's probably actually my favorite one of the year. It's a solo episode because I had an episode recorded with a guest who actually ended up coming back later, um, and she she thought that maybe she would be outed for saying something that she thought was, you know traveling to the place where she studies. So I shelved it, and but I needed an episode. So I suddenly recorded one at the last minute. And this one, which is some critical thoughts on epistemology and scholarship, um, that's what it's called, is one I point people to if you really want a thesis statement on the second season. First season, I might point you towards Black, or Smart. It's kind of my my origin story and my beginning of understanding um, the intersection of blackness and conceptualizations of a lack of intelligence, and how my positionality is quote unquote smart, was placed in opposition to my blackness. But this one is where I'm really starting to, because the theme of this season, you know, the topics are what they are, but the theme of this season is really me taking a firm stance against the epistemology of academia, because I really think that academia. Um, There's plenty of great academics, but uh, I think that as an institution, academia exists to oppress, um, unfortunately. And, you know, people still, as much as conservatives will rail against it, if something agrees with them, they'll, they'll use that. They'll still cite academic research if something happens to agree with them. It's still seen as the gold standard for the way that knowledge is generated by certain people. And I understand it, because a lot of it does require years and years of work. Anyway, this episode, I'm just going through all of the issues, journals, with academic publishing, academic writing. Um, And it really, I don't know. It's one of my favorite ones I've done. It's definitely one of the ones where you can really tell the neurodivergence is there, Unless I have someone to talk to, I don't stay focused very well, as you can probably tell in this episode I'm doing with you. Um, But, you know, I think that this one is something, especially if you're an academic or a senior academic, that you should listen to and, uh, you know, enjoy. Then there was a bonus episode, a brief trip to Lovecraft Country, where I was really interested in this show, Lovecraft Country on HBO, which if you haven't seen, the episode won't make a lot of sense. Um, But it's an episode with Keisha Wheel, who's also a uh, doctoral candidate. And she was talking about her analysis of the show. The show has interesting themes, obviously on racism, on violence, on trauma. It's got some issues with certain things with gender and colorism. Um, We talked about all the magical realism involved. and you know we talked about queerness um because Keisha herself is and there's some queerness in the show that was interesting it's a messy show and I think that that's cool um but we really came to some interesting conclusions in the episode um about you know how the show sort of concludes with um basically an implication that you 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 can't let people off the hook (laughs) or else they're going to keep coming You know, Um, so I suggest you check that one out if you have seen the show. If you have not seen the show, I suggest you watch the show and then check that episode out. That's the only bonus I did this year, though. That's that's a rare thing. Last year I did a bunch, which means that this season had 22 episodes, um, which is actually more or less the same as a a full season of a regular show on network TV, even though there are very few shows who do a full 22 episodes now. After that, I was with uh, Anara Parikh, um, and she was talking about language access. And she, this is season two, episode five, and this was the last episode before the election. Um, Although it has nothing to do with that. She is an anthropology candidate, a lot of of candidates. That's who I tend to talk to, although some of the people do have the doctorate. Um, And she had done a lot of research on giving people access to the political system, um, mostly in the Midwest, her research or her field work was in the Midwest. And, you know, we talked about concepts of literacy, you know, how um, it takes genuine concerted effort to bring people into the political system. Um, and, you know, we talk um, about what we thought might happen in the election, not the specific candidates, but how, You know, there's multiple internets is what she said. You know, I could, I, I, because I was speculating that the internet would mean that people have so much information and therefore people would be clued in and certain things would happen. And she said, but there's entire internets that I'm not looking at that she's not looking at, you know, she and I are on, you know, academic Twitter, Right. Um, and we are in our—we think we're expansive, but we're in our own little bubble. So that was an interesting topic, but it's a really valuable episode because although I'm more about language teaching, you know, straight up like language, name languages, translation, that sort of thing. These are barriers to people's experience. And so we wonder what people may vote a certain way or not vote, and language has a big thing to do with that. Um, the next episode was a solo episode that I did. This one was planned though. Um, And I put this one out after the election because I wanted, there was no way, every episode I do is political to some extent. So I didn't wanna have a political statement in an episode that was tied to the election because I wouldn't have known what the outcome was. Of course, we knew the outcome pretty quickly, like the next day, it was confirmed on the Saturday. People had some celebrations and then it was an absolute mess until and throughout January 6th and so forth. But unrelated to that, I didn't know any of this when I recorded this episode. This is season two, episode six, and it's called Eugenesis Best Friend. And basically, this is, uh, I told some stories about some friends I had growing up who, in retrospect, were pretty tied to racist ideas and ideologies, which is true of a lot of people. Um, but because I was their black friend and I was quote unquote smart, I was the exceptional Negro, right? Um, they would tell me things that they thought about black people or various groups, which I thought meant that they accepted me. But in retrospect, it just means that they thought I was one of the ones they would save if eugenics came for everybody else. Right? So I called the episode, the eugenicist's best friend, as if to say, And this is true. When you go back to like the Nazis and all that stuff, there was always a select few they would save who were special, right? And you know, you can choose to believe that that specialness means that you're great, right? And that's how you end up with a Ben Carson working for Trump, um, or some other people we'll talk about later in this episode. But you know, realizing that they—they in retrospect that they saw me as separate from my race and better than my race was not was meant that they didn't actually respect the full scope of who I was. And so I thought that was interesting. And I wanted to really get people to think about how, yeah, we don't have eugenics as such these days, but, you know, lifting one out of their race is the same principles that eugenics was. So I did... Four or five. My, this, this spread the uh, Google Drive document that I have all of my notes for these episodes on. Has all. It's called podcasts and presentations. So every public presentation that I did during this season is also on this list. And or when I was on other people's podcasts. So this is the twenty-first episode. I have not taken notes on this episode yet because I have to listen to the recording first. So there will be one more page added to it. By the time I add that page to it, there will be 44 pages in this document, and I give each presentation its own page, which is to say 21 episodes and a bonus is 22, and that means I've given 22 other presentations this year, some of which were paid, some of which weren't. That's a lot. That's a lot of public talking, and um, it's pretty cool. Anyway, the next episode, season two, episode seven, was the first one where someone asked me to do an episode with them. This is a previous um, guest, Ali Babineau, um, whose name I always pronounce wrong. I always say Bino because it's B A B B A B I N O, but it's Babino because it's a Cajun name. It's her husband's name originally. Anyway, and Mandy Stewart. They had written a book, an academic book called Radicalizing Literacies and Languaging. It's a good book that they sent me a copy of. You should buy it if you have a chance. Uh, but it was basically us yes, talking about what they're trying to do in the book um, and talking about how they're both, at least as far as you know from looking at them, white, although Ale is, uh, her mother is Mexican, so she considers herself white Mexican. It's an interesting conversation there. Um, and, you know, they really, uh, we're digging into what their book is uh, and how you know um, they have different voices and I mean that both literally and in terms of what they're saying and I think to actually hear collaborators talk about their projects because uh, this is one of the few episodes where I although I talk plenty I'm kind of an observer here you know and they're really selling me and others on their book hopefully it sold them a few copies. Um, the next episode was a very important one. Uh, the racist comments that you heard me mention in the little intro were based on an article called "After Whiteness" or ELT After Whiteness, which was on in Language Magazine. Well, the initial conversation that led to that article, we had that our conversation in November, and the article was released. Sorry, the Episode released in December where we talked about our ideas for um, ELT after whiteness, and it was with VJ Ramjatan and Scott Stiller, um, who are the co-authors on that article. And I don't want to go too into it. You should read the article or listen to the episode. But we really talked about envisioning this and and how it's supposed to be a hopeful project, you know. And it's something I hope to continue to present on going forward because basically it's an idea that this 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 new version of ELT would be better for white people, too. That's not the main thrust of it, but that is true. And, uh, you know, it's definitely something where Scott and I talk the most there because Scott came in with a list of ideas. And so Scott really drove a lot of things. Um, but Vijay has some really interesting insights. And, and you know, it's uh, it's really cool. And this was also the first episode where I had a transcript. So by the way, if you are either hearing impaired or you prefer, well, if you're hearing impaired, you aren't listening to this, but you might be reading the transcript of this. So in which case you already know. So whatever. But if you are listening to this, there are transcripts of every episode starting with this one. There was one I didn't do because I fell behind and I didn't have a chance. I forget which one that is. But all the episodes starting with season two, episode eight, "ELT After Whiteness, have transcripts that are available you, all you need to do is ask me and I will give it to you. Um, So the next one is a different one. It's actually a very sweet episode. I'm not usually sweet on this show. It was with Destiny Alvarez and it's called New Language Teacher because she is a new language teacher. So uh, some of us, some of the people on the show are, you know, new academics or, or you know, burgeoning scholars or whatever, but she is, um, I think, I can't remember if she just finished undergrad or she's finishing now, but basically she's just starting to teach the language. Um, and it's interesting thinking about my own experience and how I was and wasn't supported in hearing her experience. Um, and, you know, she, it, a lot of the stuff I talk about in my writing and in the podcast are being reflected in the way that she's being treated as she enters the classroom. Um, she did make fun of me and call me old and say I was an influencer. I did not appreciate that, although it might be kind of true. And that's annoying. Um, <laughs> so, you know. Um, so, yeah, you should check it out. It's very sweet. <laughs> it was also the last episode of 2020. Then the first episode of 2021, one I liked a lot, one of my favorite conversations with Dr. Neda, sorry, Dr. Neda Magbula. Um Nope, that's wrong. That's the incorrect pronunciation that someone said about her when I was listening to stuff to research her. It's Neda Magbula. Um Anyway, she's great. She wrote a book called All the Limits of Whiteness that I uh, read, sorry, just called The Limits of Whiteness that I read, and I wanted to talk to her about it. And we talked about it. And she's uh, of Iranian descent. And we talked about, you know, how people who are, as they say, MENA, Middle Eastern, North African, can be classified as white in the census, whereas they can also be treated as racialized socially. Um, and, also how her book, which I had not revealed that I was writing a book yet, although I knew it was happening, um, but how her book um, was a model of sort of an academic book that I might like to do. And it's not too different from the way I'm writing my book as it goes now, because there's a lot of your personal experience in there, and it's not dry research, and you should read the book too. So that was was interesting. Then there is (laughs) my silliest episode. I don't know why I did this, but I had this, I wanted to get this off my chest. And, and so I did. But basically, I spent a lot of my time watching Ivy Day Fiancé. And I wanted to talk about some of the themes with racism, colonialism, and language in there. And, and how um, I don't know that the, sh- like the, the shows... I was really trying to analyze the show's point of view. What is the show's point of view? Aside from it being a reality show, and therefore it wants money um, and wants ratings, That's all TV shows. Uh, But what is its point of view about these people? And what I came down on is that, like, the show will gladly play in racist or, um, you know, linguistically, you know, linguistically discriminatory tropes. But in some ways, and classist tropes, in some ways, it's, I don't know, in some ways, it's a little bit more nuanced than it seems. Not the show itself, but its point of view. Because basically, the show will make fun... Basically, the show will place an uncritical eye on horrible behavior by um, all the people in the show. Which means that it's easy for the audience, because the show doesn't really have an authorial point of view, to side with their own ideology... And therefore, though this Colombian is acting like Colombians, this you know, Russians is acting like Russians. This, like you know, so that's not good. That's not that's not good for the system of racism because it perpetuates it. But the show has no problem making the same like um, taking the same stance on Americans um, and on white people in general. It doesn't call them out for their whiteness. It's not quite there. But you could definitely watch the show and, sh- and see how it takes a critical view of white Americans and the way that they treat people. It could go farther, but then it wouldn't be the same show. But my point is, and maybe I'm just assuaging my guilt for watching it, there is more to look at there than I think the show even realizes. That was my point. <laughs> All right. I'm going to stop and continue. Only reason I stopped is because the uh, little recorder on the computer requires me to um, only record for 30 minutes, and I was at 24, and that's 12 episodes so far. So I figured it was a good place to stop. Okay, so the next episode after the 90 Day Fiancé one is. Um, with my best friend, like my actual best friend, aside from my dog, Keith Stewart, and um, we talked about trivia. Another thing, this is two episodes in a row where I'm just talking about stuff I like, And uh, but anyway, trivia, back in the old days, and not just pre-COVID, but pre-me having a baby and pre-me having a dog, um, I used to go to trivia, and um i was very good at it. I still like trivia. I'm doing trivia for my birthday um, on Zoom. But um, with my friend, he is a trivia host sometimes. And we talked about how, what is considered trivia. Like you don't, when you plan a trivia game, you don't plan things that nobody knows the answer to. you're trying to make a point, right? You don't want it to be so hard nobody's going to get anything. You want the game to be competitive. You don't want everyone to have zero points and one person has one point, right? You don't want it to be too easy either, but what you do is you take a common series of questions, topics, and you go from there. And what that means is the knowledge that most people have is going to be tied up in whiteness, right? Anything tied to history is obviously going to be tied up in whiteness. Anything tied up in geography is going to be tied up in whiteness. I used to be like, you know, ask questions about like, you know, what's the, the capital of this? What's the largest you know, anything with land especially, you know, what's the largest country in this continent, right? But when you think about that, a lot of the time you're erasing the people who actually live there, especially when you talk about like the United States, you're erasing settler colonialism when you talk about the trivia of states and names, and populations and so forth. So we talked about that and how there are ways to challenge the assumptions of trivia. And, uh, you know, how to make it a more equitable thing and and how to make it even more interesting, you know? So then the next one was called neurodivergent Narratives. Um, And that was with a person whose previous episode, um, we didn't end up releasing the one where I told you where I had an emergency episode. Um, But... This one was about our different experiences being neurodivergent, but she was also a white woman in a different part of the country and I'm me. So how, although she was diagnosed a little bit later and her manifestation was one way and that was another, like we we really just sort of shared stories there. And you know, I talk about being neurodivergent on here, but because it's something that I only figured out late in life, like I sometimes do feel a little bit uncomfortable beyond mentioning it and some of the limitations it gives me but this was the first time I got to spend some time publicly talking about how the experience was for me growing up with someone who, you know, kind of understood from her perspective. And the manifestation was different for each of us. Um, And the way we were treated was different because I'm a decade older than she is. And, you know, things had advanced to some extent. Um, So that was an interesting episode. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with language you know, this episode's about every. this show's about everything now, um, but it does have to do with race and racism and, you know, the ideas of being, one might say, disabled, um, uh, and how they've shifted in the time between when I was younger and when she was younger. I guess she's still pretty young. Then, in the next episode, this is now season two, episode 14, it's called The Academics Doth Protest Too Much. And this is basically a sequel to the cancel culture can the cancel culture episode. At this point, cancel culture was the buzzword that every white guy especially was talking about. Um but at this point we were talking a little bit about um more people like John McWhorter, um people like that, you know, sort of the people who are mad about the word woke, right? Which let's be clear, the word woke was something black people said to each other that it was taken and spread to white people. And then it got ruined, just like the the phrase cancel culture also started among black people and got spread to white people. And then it got ruined. Um, So we talked about that and I really was upset about people like John McWhorter, a black guy who should know better, but he's sort of, What I've talked about where my friends treated me as the special black guy. Well, he's a successful academic. And uh, he probably thinks that he's just, you know, harder working and that other people need to work harder. And, you know, being called out on his rigid views makes him uncomfortable. So he's spending a lot of energy trying to shut people down who go against them. So we talked about how academics really play a role in reifying this nonsense and how it's a problem. And um, you know, we'll probably do more episodes on the woke and the cancel culture and so forth as long as it remains a buzzword for weird racist white people and not just white people. Oh, I did mention it was the same, it was also with Caitlin Green, the same person from the previous episode. So it'll probably just be a series. That's, that's, that's the second one. Um. So the next one I think was an important episode. Didn't get quite as many listeners because, you know, how people are. But it was with uh, to my Chu to Pie, um, who was a doctoral candidate, and uh, she and I were talking about. This was right after the crisis in Burma And she is Burmese, and she was talking about how academics are having conferences. They're having talks about Burma and what's going on. Now, it's not the worst thing in the world to have a talk just so people understand it. But academics love to talk, and they don't do anything, right? Generally speaking, there are people, or the burden falls all upon Burmese people to explain themselves to other people, and then people go on with their lives. Are you still talking about Burma? You forgot, didn't you, right? You aren't thinking about it anymore, right? Um, I I haven't heard anything in the news about it lately. You have to go looking, you know? We've moved on. Um, And she was talking about how frustrating it is that people move on um, so quickly, you know? And instead of just, she says people will just offer a Burmese person co-authorship. Great, but that's power within the academy. You know, power and solidarity change things It's not the same as being a more prominent academic. So we really talked about how we don't do shit in this field for people who are oppressed. And in fact, by holding ourselves inside of the gate, we are helping to oppress them. And academics need to do more than be academics if they want these regimes to change. Or they can specialize in researching these oppressed people and move on with their lives. The next episode was a little, a little bit of an offbeat one. Uh listenership a little bit lower. And that once you should go check it out it was called Unsustainable. And it was an interview with Rachel Emis, who a a, I'm sorry, Dr. Rachel Emis, who is uh, at Rutgers Newark. And she was talking about how her specialty, which is about sustainability, you know, and her experience basically coming from complete ignorance and, you know, realizing that she was going to harm her pretty diverse group of students um, if she hadn't unpacked the whiteness that's inherent to her subfield of sustainability and also to, you know, her role as an administrator in academia. Um, and so it was both about her learning how to do better um, on these things and also how it challenges people in the field of sustainability because, And this is what's bothering people, is that there are so many subfields that aren't explicitly about race, just like language, right? Where people think, I don't have to think about race if I go into this field. And then people bring the discussion of racism into it because racism touches everything and people get mad. That's why this guy is trolling me around the Internet. It's because I talk about whiteness and racism in the field and he thinks that has nothing to do with the acquisition of language. Um, And he's wrong. So, you know, she was talking about how that's definitely the case and sustainable too. Um, the next episode is with someone who's become one of my very good friends now, Dr. Elizabeth King, and we were talking about early childhood education. Now, it just so turns out that we actually ended up finding, my wife and I found a daycare for Ezel shortly after this, and he's doing very well there that doesn't mean that there aren't so many problems with child childhood education, aside from the cost of it and so forth. Um, we talked about how there's now an emphasis on social emotional learning, but if we don't actually unpack the whiteness of these lessons, then you're just going to be telling black and brown kids how to behave. Um, and we talk about, you know, there's the um, issue with the way that early childhood education a lot of the time is just speaking in high-pitched voices to small kids without really understanding anything about racism and so forth, right? But we think that kids can't understand racism. We can think that kids can't understand race, but they're learning these things about different groups from the time they're six months old, even if they can't articulate it. So if, you know, what's the, the adage? If my child, my black child, is old enough to experience racism, then your white child is old enough to learn about it. So we were talking about that. Um, and, you know, necessary conversation because I don't really know anything about UCE per se, but it's definitely something that we need to think about because, you know, what, you want to change all the people who are 20 years old? Great. But they have kids, and what are we going to do about those kids if we don't change the way people are taught at every age? This is going to be a problem that never goes away. And that's why we're all trying to do so much, and that's why so many people are so upset, because they feel like there's, you know, where is this part of the world they can go to and not think about racism? Well, good luck, white people, because we can't not think about it ever. The next one is one of the ones that I'm really happy with. It's with uh, Selena Carrione, who is a public school teacher here in New York or in the Bronx, specifically. Um, And this is the first time I think I've actually had a working public school teacher on mine, but it was spring break. So that's how I was able to do it. It Her spring break, not mine. Um, And we were really talking about the reopening conversation. First of all, we think it's poorly named. Schools have never really closed. The buildings might have been closed, but anyway. And then, of course, by March, most of the buildings were open, especially for younger kids. But the families leading the reopen, men are, you know, angry white moms. Um, and we talked about how a lot of the reason that they want, they're pushing so much for schools to be reopened is they're worried about their kids mythically falling behind other kids when their kids are going to be fined anyway. Or it's the fact that they, they have chosen to put their kid in a public school. And to them, that's a big part of their identity, that they're a public school parent. Um, but part of that agreement that they would bother to put their kid in a public school, that they won't fall behind or that the school will do what they want. So, you know, I can't remember if it was me. Uh, or if it was Selena who said this, but basically we said, you know, sometimes they want to reopen schools so they can close their own eyes and not have to think about any of the stuff that's going on, right? So, you know, it's uh, interesting. I think we've lost the battle on these schools being open, and these buildings being open safely or unsafely. But we're going to win the war on this. Uh, public education, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be a long battle, but I, I have to believe we can make it better. Even if I'm not a K-12 teacher myself, my kid's going to be in those schools eventually. I'm not, I can't just send him into these schools if I don't try to do something about it. The next episode was the purpose, promise, and problems of professional organizations with Rob Shepard. Rob Shepard is a returnee also. He was the very first guest I ever had in this podcast way back in August of 2019. Um, which by the way, still the most listened to episode because I think people hear one of my episodes or they hear about it and they're like, Well, let me go here, listen to the very first episode. I think some people do that. Everyone's very first episode. You ever listen to a podcast that's developed the first episode? They don't know what they're doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I recorded everything wrong. Yeah. Anyway. Um so this one's different, and we're both in important roles in professional organizations. He's in Pennsylvania, TESOL East, and I'm in New York State, TESOL, and we talked about our roles and how the places that we're involved with need to be places the solidarity can be built, um, but they can also be places where solidarity goes to die because of their rigid restrictions and so forth. Um and uh, we talked about what these places can do. Like, is it better to create new ones? But then, how do you how do you regulate them? You know, how do you stop them from just turning into the same thing? Um, you know, how can they? How can power be amassed with them and within them through them? So that's a lot of what was happening in that conversation. And you know, it's it was interesting to think about. And finally talk to my wife, Alyssa Margaret Gerald, about an article that we're working on called um, Savior to Savior. And in that article, we talk about how there's a lot of emphasis on the white savior nature of donors and, and, you know, big money people and funders. And yes, but um, there's also a problem with the people who run these places because if they are no different from the donors and they usually make enough money to be in the same situation, then they're just going to protect each other. It's a closed loop, right? It's sort of whiteness as property, as Harris once said, uh, is whiteness as property and they are protecting their property. So, you know, the white savior nature of all of these agencies, these city agencies, including the one that I sometimes work with, um, and, you know, they all think they're doing heroic shit. And once you start to believe you're doing heroic shit, you have no incentive to improve. Yeah? So that's pretty much what I talked about this series, this season. my final notes on the season are that, you know, when I started the season, I was still deciding what to do for my dissertation. I had the two articles published, and I was starting to talk more publicly. But still, the, the amount of stuff that I was able to do in the past, I guess, nine months is, is surprising to me. I, I got a book contract during it um i i know what i'm going to be doing going forward um i really do think i need to be a voice uh, on language and whiteness because there still aren't very many doing that and based on the racist comments and so forth i've been getting you know i am pissing off the right people now i'm not a troll in that sense like my job is i'm not trying to be provocative for the sake of being provocative i'm trying to re-envision this stuff you know, although this podcast is about a lot of things that matches language teaching anymore, um, all these things are connected. And I'm really trying to put forth a better future because although my kid isn't going to be in an English language class as such, like, if you if it if you feel it is fair for the system of English language teaching to remain how it is, then there's no reason that my black kid will not be seen uh, negatively by teachers in his standard classrooms. So as ever i do this for him but i do it for me too for the version of me that used to exist and wasn't quite treated the same way i have a lot more i'm planning to do got a keynote speech next year more talks in the fall i uh the only thing i hope is that you all stay interested for the time when i come back in in uh around labor day because i know who i'm bringing in for my first couple of guests and uh and and again thank you again to anyone who's contributed throughout the year it's really helped me (laughs) of all things standardize the audio and the the practices of this so that we are you know you know what you're going to get each time um the only thing i'm going to do next year is probably standardize exactly what time it's released because that probably does not help the listenership and i'm going to get some some really cool guests next year man That's what I'm going to do. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sitting through my little story about racism and motivation. And continue to do whatever you're doing to challenge whiteness in your context because we need all of us in this fight. Yeah? Every single one of us. All right. You have a good summer.